Some, in some traditions, especially the Tibetan tradition, some of the teachings, the, it's not unusual for someone giving a Dharma talk to snap their fingers three times like that. And what I was doing inwardly as I did it was, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. Or as I was reflecting on my own death, and that's considered a kind of an antidote to the natural <laughs> tendency to have pride, for, you know, sitting up higher, teaching, having people come for help and look at you a certain way. And so it can be helpful so that you don't lose perspective that the person who's carrying out that function, as everyone else, is going to die. Um, often, when you think of meditation, at least uh, before I go, I, how many people are very, very new to this practice? Anyone here who's very new to the practice? Okay. Have you done other forms of meditation? Okay. In a lot of uh, the various kinds of meditations, the focus is on something that uh, quite clearly has associated with it beauty or joy or peace and a lot of meditative talk has to do with that and so perhaps some of you may find it unusual or a puzzle but why death why would death be an actual contemplation or a reflection and in the teachings of the Buddha it's a very important one it's part of the general importance given to impermanence change death being a dramatic case of that so the reflection on Anicca, that everything that arises passes away, is central to wisdom practice. I wouldn't say it's unique to Buddhism. There's a strong emphasis on it, but everyone in whatever tradition has to come to terms with that, or no tradition, right? Everyone has to come to terms with it. Um, it's not an exercise in morbidity or kind of... Uh, dwelling on the unhappy side of life at all. Um, In fact, when it's done properly, it brings you into balance. And uh, I've done a fair amount of this uh, reflection and uh, a lot recently. Um, It's quite astonishing how much peace comes out of it. Stability and peace and balance. perhaps not too surprisingly, because most of us are imbalanced when it comes to death, one way or another. We really don't see it, not really, or not deeply enough, as a natural process. And we haven't come to terms with the nature of this body. And so if we haven't, then we have all kinds of funny reactions to it, excessive joking or avoidance or preoccupation in a morbid way with it. In the uh, first meditation sermon that the Buddha gave on the Satipatthana Sutta, where the basically the essentials of our practice are laid out, one contemplation of the famous cemetery contemplations. In those days, the yogis would go to actual cemeteries 
and sometimes live there for extended periods of time because uh, often the dead bodies were not buried or burned but were just discarded, left there for vultures to eat as out of compassion for uh, the animal kingdom. And so it could be a training. It was a training uh, at a certain point for some people. Not everyone did it. And not everyone of you will want to do it and that's fine. We'll want to do this contemplation. And so people would uh, observe uh, the human body in various uh, states of decomposition and work with what that brought up in themselves, as you can imagine. It could bring up quite a bit. You're looking at an actual corpse, sometimes just a skeleton or sometimes just part of a skeleton or some flesh remaining. The whole point was to understand that uh, whoever this, whatever this body that's in front of you was, whoever that belonged to, so to speak, um, the law that that was subject to is the same law that, that you are subject to, that I'm subject to. It is just as that dead person is subject to, uh, if a person is born and they age, they get sick or they die. And the reflection has to do with I'm not exempt from that lawfulness. It applies to me. So that uh, in Buddhist practice, there's sort of a, a twofold sense of development when you're dealing with death. One is, let's say, if somebody's dying, it's uh, the, the dying person or uh, friends and family of the dying is to be very kind, is to be as compassionate and as kind as you can be uh, with the person who's dying. Perhaps helping the person dying, the person dying to let go, to not cling to anything. Uh, perhaps helping the person dying to remember the good things that they did in their life so that they die with that remembrance of uh, kind things they did, joyful things they did, perhaps uh, heroic things that they did. And most of all, where, especially where possible, if the person's been a meditator, to help the person die at peace and with clarity rather than perplexed, bewildered, deny, denying things and so forth. In Buddhism, um, what we do is we kind of make ourselves go through the fear of dying now when many of us are quite young and all of us are relatively young in this room so that later on it isn't a problem or it's less of a problem. The normal way is just the reverse. We avoid it for our whole life and then towards the end it's an enormous problem because we haven't dealt with it for ourselves and for the people in our lives. So, uh, if you're quite young, let's say if you're under 30, uh, it's fine. This meditation is fine because whenever you pick it up, it has to do with something that will eventually happen. Eventually, we will all die. Now, sometimes when you're under 30, or I don't know, it varies, of course, from person to person, it's hard to uh, activate, to generate a sincere or deep belief in the fact that you're going to die. It's hard for all of us to do that. But it seems like you've got a long time before you have to worry about that. You know, let him worry about it. He's got some gray hair and all that. So that sometimes that's a factor. But inevitably, it's something that we all have to deal with. Um, 
Why? What, what's the purpose of it all? Now, actually, it's quite a, a profound subject because it has to do with the, the heart of wisdom. Um, and wisdom has to do with seeing things as they are. That is, coming to terms with the way things are, and in particular, the way our body is, the lawfulness that our body is subject to. Wisdom has to do with that, seeing clearly, seeing deeply. Perfect seeing is one translation of vipassana, of insight. And so what's implied is that, to begin with, we don't really see very clearly, and we certainly don't look into the process of life and death very clearly. And so this, in some sense, is a wisdom practice, in that it begins to direct and cultivate thinking that's in alignment with the way things are. Some of what I'll suggest for you tonight is a, a creative way of using thought, thought and images, feelings, a way of using the thinking process, the intellect, as well as emotion, in such a way so that it's in alignment with the way things are, rather than just thought being however it's come about that we think based on our education. And probably your education has not, speaking in general, included a realistic preparation for dying. Probably has not. So that it contributes to wisdom, it also contributes, and that's the inside part of our practice, it also contributes to samadhi or calm. Perhaps not at first. To begin with, there's resistance and even annoyance. Sometimes I've had people walk out on, I've given this teaching before, um, and if anything that's said, uh, let's say you start to feel sweats or clammy or uh, jittery or anxiety, really look at it. And if you want to leave, obviously, leave. But uh, the design is to look at it in its natural form, to come to terms with it so that we see it for what it is. So that it also contributes to calm, although at the beginning it probably doesn't. And I've noticed after doing a, a recent personal retreat, after the extensive work, uh, in my own case, I've worked with a skeleton a lot, uh, not a out inward, just viewing skeletons and what happens with that. Um, immense peace comes after it. <clears throat> I've tried to understand it, not based on what commentaries say or what the Buddha said. The only thing I can come up with is that, for me at least, um, probably unconsciously, there's so little concern with that <coughs> that when I do it, it brings me into balance. It's a kind of sobering in a good way. I feel more real. I feel it's like I'm really walking with each foot on the ground. And so what kinds of things can come out of these reflections? Uh, what I'll suggest tonight will be one way of doing it, and the outline is simply for you to take home so that if you wish to deepen it, uh, you may do so. Um, I mentioned the cemetery meditations. Uh, those of you who would like to go into that in more detail and we'll be able to tonight, read the Satipatthana Sutta, the famous teaching on arousing mindfulness. It's available in the library. We have many. Uh, so easily, easy to come by. Or read Vasudhimaga, the path of purif- purification. 
And what this practice is, is what the Buddha called Marana Sati. Marana Sati is mindfulness of death. And there's a whole chapter on it in the Vasudhimaga. Uh, it's slightly, somewhat different than what we'll be doing tonight with some overlap. And I'm sure uh, if any of you decide to do some work along these lines, it, you'll create your own practice because that's what happens. We may start off in a systematic and methodical way, but eventually you'll find your own key to deepening your understanding of this very important process. Um, if you go through some of the ancient commentaries, there uh, claims are made for what the value of this might be and what the limitations of, of not using it. When we don't take into account, let's say, uh, let's, let's start off positively, to contemplate our own death is an expression of the, the contemplation of impermanence. And one of the things that can come out of that is the decision to practice in the first place. And spiritual literature, not just Buddhist, is quite rich with ways in which people uh, finally woke up to, uh, the, to some path, whatever. And it came out of death, death of a parent, something that just woke them up. And suddenly, uh, spiritual teachings which had been available became really alive to them and their practice. Uh, they started to practice. Also, those of you who feel drawn to this practice, and you may not now, you may pick it up years from now, you find that uh, since you're all, I'm assuming all of you are already practicing, you may find that it deepens your practice. It motivates you tremendously and it can take you through very hard times in terms of practice, like on retreats when you feel you just can't sit anymore or you just feel so sleepy. Whenever I get sleepy on retreats, this is what I use. I don't mention it too much in the, some of you I know are from the beginner's class and so forth. Uh, I think that unless a person has some exposure to these principles, it might seem strange to be told to reflect on your own death. I mean, some of the people who walk in to begin with, uh, I don't think that would be really such wise teaching. If somebody says they're sleeping, so just reflect on your own death. But if somebody, but put in context, and that's another thing to understand, um, reflecting on our own death is is not something that's meant to be done in an isolated way. It's part. It's a part of an organic whole, of a comprehensive path, a way of developing spiritually. And if it's taken out of that context. It's like anything else that's denatured. It's distorted and can even be destructive. So that uh, everyone here has some familiarity with with some path and most with this path. And so it's in the context of everything that you understand about freedom and about liberation, about suffering and so forth, compassion, that it makes sense. And so uh, in my own case, if I feel sleepy, I just reflect on my own death and I've been doing it for a while and it wakes me up very quickly. It's been turned out to be the most reliable one. Or if there's some pettiness. Sometimes, you know, you, you get caught in something and that very few things stand up when you uh, shine the light of death on them. 
They don't stand up. I mean, it's just ludicrous. Resentments that you have or preoccupations. It's a bit like if you get caught in some of these things, which at the time seems monumental, and we're encouraged to have death as our, in a sense, as our advisor, accompanying us through life, which it is, isn't it? At any rate, in most things that we do which become problematic, death as an, avi- as an advisor would be saying, I haven't ta- tapped you on the shoulder yet. You know, what's the big, big fuss about what you're worrying about? It's nothing. I haven't decided that it's your time yet. Oh, that's right. When put in the context of, uh, of our own death, uh, all kinds of fights and... After all, if we're all going to die anyway, what's the whole point of war? What's the whole point of any of this, of murder and things of this sort? Or, let's say, getting revenge on some enemy. He or she's going to die anyway. Just be patient. (laughs) You don't have to go to jail. You don't have to get all that adrenaline going and all the biochemical stress. Just wait around. In the end, it'll all work out. So it can be quite motivating to practice. Uh, to understand uh, the importance. Now, I would say the main value, there are a number of uh, benefits that come from uh, Marana Sati, the awareness of death, is from the point of view of spiritual life, of let's say Dharma life, life in practice, is to get our priorities in order. That is, we're running around doing all kinds of things. Now, this is what I mean. This practice has to be understood in the context of people who already have a spiritual interest. For example, just the simple statement that was just now made. To reflect on your own death can radically alter your priorities when you start to see how you spend your time and that we don't have forever. And if you care about certain things, and uh, in a little while I hope that will be more clear as to how to get those priorities straighter. We'll do a a kind of a very light uh, guided meditation so that it can get you to really um, give your practice a much higher consideration in how you you expend your energies. But just picture uh, some of the things that I'm going to say tonight, and you already have some sense of what's coming. Uh, to a random, to just a group of people who are just wandering off the street. And I started to remind them, you know, life is uncertain and you, do, you can die in so many ways. Do you think necessarily their first impulse would be to hit the cushion and start to meditate? Probably, probably would be to go to Acapulco, you know, or Las Vegas. Or something that, you know, something else that, uh, desperate, having to do with sex or money or, food or travel or, you know, I just got to get, get that in before it's too late. So it, do, it doesn't follow that because you find out you're going to die that you suddenly become very spiritual. But we're a select group. I mean, we're already, you know, halfway there. I mean, we're already moving in this direction. And probably some things have already died, major ones, or you wouldn't be that interested in this stuff. I mean, if you're having just an incredibly great time out there, why would you be here? <laughs> You'd be there. So here we are, the half dead. <laughs> okay. 
which can be turned around to our advantage, which I hope will become clear tonight. Um, It can help very much with attachment and go into a little bit more detail of that in a few moments. Uh, The negative side is if there isn't some profound context for the practice. And I know that, that for some of the people who come to the center or various meditation centers, there isn't. It's, uh, it's one thing among many, and that's fine. You have to start where you, where you are. It's not that you're supposed to pretend to be so absorbed in this, because that wouldn't, it won't work. But uh, in the commentaries, and one of the most uh, eloquent statements on it is by Milarepa, a great Tibetan yogi. I'm not going to quote it, it's too lengthy, but essentially what he's saying is that any practice that doesn't have death in the background is superficial. It's probably not worth much. Now remember, it's not, um, it's not death alone. If it's just a preoccupation with death, that can lead to desperation, despair, discouragement. It's, not, it's death plus dharma. Please understand that. And I'll, it will be more clear in a, in a, as we go on. You'll see how the two are related. That is, dharma is of can't estimate the value of it in terms of death. If you don't have a frame of reference or a practice and someone keeps reminding you of death or keeps telling you, keep thinking about how you're going to die, probably isn't too healthy. I don't know how valuable that would be. From time to time, everyone does. But I mean in a deep way. Okay. It can be very uh, humbling to reflect on your own death. Tremendously humbling. Uh, When you look around and you realize that no matter what you think you are, or no matter what you think other people aren't, we're all subject to the same fate. The most wealthy, the richest, the most beautiful, the most handsome, the most intelligent person, the kindest, Mother Teresa, and some person who's hallucinating, who's totally disoriented, or a murderer, or a killer, rapists, everyone. We all end the same way in one sense. The body ends in the same way. It dies. It gives out. It's a great leveler. In my own case, uh, another benefit that has come from it for me has been compassion. Um, it didn't occur to me a whole lot, at least not consciously, until reading the story of, uh, in the Thai forest tradition, uh, some of you know, the yogis will, will go out into the forest, they used to, uh, and they'll practice in very wild parts of, parts of the jungle of Thailand and Burma and places like that, where there are tigers. And it's done intentionally. They want to do their sitting and walking within range of tigers because it's a test of their fear. If they are afraid, which is to say their mindfulness is not strong and their metta, loving kindness, is not strong, then they are a candidate for the noon meal. And so, I mean, you don't do that as a beginner. We wouldn't take our beginners and say, hey, let's go out to uh, check out your walking meditation, see how... (laughs) See if you're really concentrated and calm. 
but people who are ready used to do that. And there was one story of a, a monk who was doing his walking meditation when suddenly he looked up and he saw that he was being, it was a tiger. Not very far away, he could feel the presence, feel the, hear the breath, everything. Just looking at him very, very, very carefully. And he felt fear, tremendous fear. At which point, what he did was a reflection. He looked at the tiger with as much compassion as he could because the compassion came out of the perception that both were comrades in birth, in aging, in sickness, and in death. That as he looked at the comrade, we have the same at the tiger. We have, we're the comrades, different kind of comrade. We have the same faith, the same fate. You know, your body and my body, they're not that different. They're not different at all. You know, our bodies are the same. And he looked with such love that, according to the way he described it, the tiger, he was not a problem for the tiger. And sometimes, if somebody's giving you a hard time, if you just reflect on it, it makes it a lot easier to see things from their side. It's not necessarily to not do anything about it, but how you do it might be more sensible. When you understand... uh, what's underlying what's going on. In the Dhammapada, which is another great teaching of the Buddha, it said that people would never fight or argue if they fully realized that they were going to die. I mean, how could you squabble over things if everyone really knew this? As mentioned before, things sort of lose their potency uh, when put in a more profound context. Okay, what uh, we're going to do in a few moments is I'm going to give you uh, just a very light sense of how you might work with this uh, reflection if you would if you would like to, and I'm keeping it light intentionally. Um, I don't feel comfortable giving a teaching like this, as valuable as it is, and it is invaluable to just a a general group of people not knowing many of you, not knowing your emotional state, not knowing how you're feeling tonight, not knowing your relationship to the practice. I feel there's some value in you being exposed to it. And so it's going to be a light introduction and some suggestion how to work with it. And so those of you who are drawn to it will have the opportunity to work with it. And if you like, you know, if you get any questions, of course, you know, bring them up, come to interviews or whatever. if, as you hear this, you feel uh, a lot of fear and some resistance, you don't really want to work with this, then hear it as any other a talk that you might hear at some a college or a university. Just hear it as a, a cultural event. Or he, observe us all here as the way an anthropologist would, you know, this strange Buddhist tribe and they seem to be preoccupied with death. And, and just, you know, observe us and watch us go through one of our incantations here. (laughs) So don't do anything you don't really feel like doing and just consider it as a possibility that it might be a useful thing for a human being to do. A brief uh, introduction to what we'll be doing in a few moments. We'll be taking up something for contemplation. Now, uh, many of you who have been uh, practicing Vipassana for a while perhaps have never done a contemplation of this sort. 
Because the emphasis in our practice is on the direct perception of what's happening and more, mostly letting things just be natural, just observing them as they are. Now, some of you have done metta. That's a little different. We're cultivating something. We're arousing a particular sentiment. Or you've done some work on compassion or, or uh, sympathetic joy or equanimity. So there, you've done something like this where you try to induce a certain quality of mind. <clears throat> um, and as you know, when you're practicing vipassana or uh, samadhi practice, you're not encouraged to think. But here you'll be learned as a way of using the thought process itself very creatively so that it's an aid to the development of wisdom. And this can be a a valuable adjunct to your practice. And it brings into it wisdom and samadhi, uh, vipassana and and, uh, samatha as well. What you do is you take up a thought like the first one, the inevitability of death. Everyone has to die. Please leave the sheets down. It'll be distracting. Just don't worry. I'm going to... I'll talk us through it. And then um, what you... Uh, you have license to take that thought inside, to, to reflect on it, to contemplate it. Now, here's where it can become very creative. Uh, each person will do it in their way, their own, and I'm sure, unique way. Uh, you can... Uh, in a sense, have a conversation with yourself. You can uh, speculate. You can draw upon the richness of your own life experience to this point in time. You can visualize things. Now, once you get into it, now, again, as so many of the things that we do, perhaps everything, the degree of samadhi or the degree of calm and concentration that you bring to anything has a great deal to do with the quality, the fruit of what you receive from it. So that... uh, a very good way of doing this contemplation is to uh, uh, do anapanasati first. Be mindful of the breath. Or if you have some other technique that enables you to become fairly calm. If you have a strong samadhi practice, it'll be very different. You'll pick up a thought and the thought will become very rich. And so you can play with it. You can uh, question. You can investigate. You can reflect. You can visualize It's very intuitive as you get started. At first you may feel inhibited. But once you get started, but it's important to remain mindful, just as in any other practice. It's important to maintain the attitude of understanding. And I would say a little something, I don't have the right word for it, but it's something like a religious attitude or a devotional attitude. That is, we're reflecting on something that's very, very profound. It has to do with, with life, with our life. It's not just some concentration exercise. It's some neutral thing. And so the attitude is very, very important. Now, while you're doing it, again, uh, the degree to which there is samadhi already would enhance the creative possibilities with this form of contemplation. But while you're doing it, what happens from time to time is a certain feeling will come up, an intuitive feeling. For example, let's say take this one. Uh, that everyone, uh, let's say the inevitability of death, and in some way you get a sense of that, not necessarily in words. In fact, idea it's not words, feeling, or a strong conviction. Somehow it impresses itself upon the heart. Suddenly you feel, wow, 
I mean, you already know what I'm saying. It, the inevitability of death, right? Everyone understands me. You all know, we all know what we're talking about, don't we? But we don't. So as you take it inside and as you go deeper and deeper, because it's not the words that's important. The words are just sounds. Blah, blah, blah. They're, they're words that are engineered by, you know, there's a certain friction, sound comes out, and you understand what I'm saying. But the more you reflect on it, you chew on it, you may have a feeling, a feeling may have a sense of conviction about what it is we're contemplating. At that point, drop all of this creative thinking, analysis, investigation, reflection, and just bring your samadhi to bear on it. That is, mix whatever degree of concentration you have with the feeling. Soak the feeling in, in the calm. It makes it more alive. It gives it more depth, more fullness, more being. So that the idea that at first was on the superficial level, a layer of the mind, uh, when soaked, when mixed in with whatever stability of mind you have, you can't have more than you have at that moment, then be with it. That's your object. It's a kind of one-pointed meditation, again, just as like with any other samadhi practice, like with the breath. And be with it as long as you can. What you find is that, and at the beginning it may just be a few seconds, it will fade. Don't struggle. Don't try to bring it back. Then either go back to the more creative aspect or take a break. Drop it. That's the end of the session. Now, so what, now typically what can happen is you begin reflecting with certain words and ways of, as we'll go into in a few moments, of sort of priming the pump or arousing some sense of what it is that we're talking about. And out of that may come a feeling which you can then mix in with your concentration, with your calm, with whatever degree of stability you have. And that sometimes it will last for a while, sometimes it will fade. If you go back, if you feel feel like it, go back and then continue the more analytical kind of investigation. But sometimes after that, you don't feel like doing that, then drop it. Just go back to some other practice. It can go on for a while like this, both uh, mixing of samadhi and vipassana, samadhi and vipassana, because we are trying to understand impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and no self. Only we're now, it's kind of a disciplined use of thought. Uh, it's an intense use of thought in, so that thought becomes an ally to dharma rather than an enemy of it. Okay, now, uh, there are nine uh, suggested reflections and we're going to go through them now. Uh, Not in a huge amount of detail, but I hope I can give you enough of a sense of how you might do it on your own. Now, at the end of a session, it's not wise to finish up feeling sad or down because of this. Uh, Some of you may. Some of you take the exercise seriously. So in one sense, it's good you may at the end of it feel much more sad than when you came in. Oh my God, I'm going to die. What do I need to come to CIMC for that one? I was bummed out to begin with and now... okay. But that's not the purpose of this contemplation. The purpose of the contemplation is for to come to terms with the fact that we're going to die so it's natural. We're not trying to get ourselves depressed or become morbid about it. Not at all. Now, you may have to go through some of that to finally come to a very, very balanced view of it. So that if at the end, and you can't control this, you should find that 
you end up in some state that's uh, a bit uh, discouraging based on this or depressing because of this, and it may not be major. If you feel it's going to be major, perhaps you shouldn't do this contemplation. Wait till some other time. You know best. But if you should finish up that way, what you can do is um, reflect on uh, the fact that it's not too late. That is, the very reason that we reflect on on death is to enliven our practice, to really give us much more energy to do all this sitting and walking and so forth and to stay awake and to really learn and grow, to understand that that we can do that and that we're not hopeless, that uh, we did this and that it's not too late. Moreover, it's possible to die peacefully. It's not too late for that either, for all of us. And so you can come out of it understanding that you've done something that's constructive and balance out perhaps some of the gray feelings that you may feel, especially at the beginning. Now, we can't control what's going to come up. What comes up, comes up. But everyone here is a meditator, and mostly in Vipassana. I'm not sure what you're doing. Um, If you feel you're off a bit, look at it. Examine it, because some of the value is what is brought up. We do want to feel some of the things that are that have to do with a clear recognition of death, and that's on the way to the full acceptance of death as a natural process. Okay, why don't uh, you all go into meditative pot? Or before we go into it, one thing that someone gave me this is a gift. Those of you who shop at Bread and Circus and jog and uh, you know, do all those kind of nice things. Go to acupuncture. Every, you might enjoy this one. It's a, a bumper sticker which they gave to me because it's appropriate. It says, "Eat well, stay fit, and die anyway." Can you see it? <laughs> okay. Forget about the sheet of paper. Go into your. Close your eyes. Come to your breath. And for a few moments, just return to your old friend, the breathing. On your own, you'll be able to deepen and develop some of the hints that will be put out right now, but right now it's just going to be skimming over the surface a bit. used to instruct the yogis at the time when they would do this practice to frequently during the day reflect on the statement death will take place some versions of it people will just say marana 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 that's death 
death, death, death. In the first of these nine guidelines, the inevitability of death, start off with the notion that everyone has to die. Just for the moment, let that thought in. One useful way to make this reflection more concrete is to bring to mind people from the past who are already dead. People that we know who have died. extraordinary people. This can be very helpful. (coughs) Take wisdom. We all value wisdom or compassion. There have been some extraordinary human beings who fully perfected these qualities, Jesus, the Buddha. And even they had to die. No matter how liberated, how powerful the mind, their bodies were not exempt from this law. Some people are helped doing the, doing the contemplation by keeping the awareness of the breath going in the background, sort of, while you're contemplating. Sometimes the breath, just a light connection with the breathing, soothes and steadies the mind and can actually deepen the reflection. But not everyone benefits from it. Try it. whatever dimension of life we human beings respect and are attracted to. None of it's a protection, final protection. If it's wealth you're interested in, even the wealthiest people can't use their money to protect themselves finally.
wealthy, the poverty-stricken. We all die. Perhaps it's physical strength that's impressive. Powerful personalities, political figures, wonderful athletes. At some point, their bodies must go along with the law because it is a law. Some years ago, I used to watch The Late Show a lot and see movies that were basically in the 30s. Comedies, drama, all the actors were dead, the directors, the writers, the musicians, makeup, everyone was dead. And you would see it on screen. It was actually very useful in the prime of their life, doing all the things that we all do, running after this and hitting that, running away from that. The men were virile, the women were seductive. We have film captures it for us, we can see. Clark Abel, Betty Davis, gone. Each and every one of us in this room will die without exception. In perhaps 150 years, maybe a little less or a little more, there won't be one person on this planet who's alive now who will be alive then be a totally, completely new cast of characters. We'll all be gone, the entire planet. The reflection can help us relax a bit, let go. There doesn't seem to be any remedy for this. It seems to be out of our hands. Give it up. 
And as we sit right here in this room, our lifespan is decreasing continuously. Time passes at this very moment. The seconds become what we call minutes, which become what we call hours. We all move closer towards a common destination. The body stops breathing. The mind separates from the body. Perhaps you can get a sense of that right in this moment by bringing your attention to the uninterrupted flow of time. Get a sense of that right now. This flow continues from the moment we were born. It started. Like a mountain stream, it flows downhill, not uphill. So time is always running out for all of us. On your own, if you would feel something strong about anything that's been said or that you would think, you could pause and bring your samadhi to it, mix your attention with it, and you're welcome to do that here as well. This is just an introduction. And as you'll see as we go on, a very important reflection is that the amount of time spent during our life to develop the mind is really rather small. Please remember in the teachings of the Buddha, death is not cessation or termination, but actually a transition. Whether you believe that or not, for the moment, consider it. And so when the body dies, in this teaching, there's a mental continuum the traces, the residue of the virtuous and the cruel actions that we've done is with us. We bring our karma with us. So the mind doesn't end even though the body does. And so what is it that we take away from this life? It's only what we've developed in the mind. Everything else in terms of the body is we leave behind. And if you look, even in a few moments here, a kind of casual inventory, how much of our day is spent eating, sleeping, getting caught up in certain moods, 
How much time do we spend cultivating the mind? The mind here includes the heart. Often, we find when we do this kind of an inventory, very little. Even though that's what we take with us. We seem to give much more time and attention to things that are transitory. Accumulations. that need to be left behind. Not only is death inevitable, it's also uncertain. Although we know that we will all die, we don't know when, we don't know where. We don't know how. Some beings die in embryonic form. Some die at birth. Some die in bed. In 90s or 100 years old. for most people it comes as a surprise when it comes the challenge for the contemplation here would be to generate a strong feeling of complete uncertainty As you know, this is central to the Buddha's teaching, coming from impermanence. Things are uncertain. This is just one more example of that principle. We're not really in control. Something much bigger than us is happening. We're part of it. And it's uncertain. If you can feel that uncertainty and stay with the feeling, stay with that sense of it, an inner conviction. If not, hear the words and let them operate on you. So we don't know when we're going to die or where. We don't know what will cause our death. Seemingly indefinite numbers of causes
earthquakes, car accidents, any number of illnesses, wars. Diseases alone are so many. And any one can do it. Any one of these causes is enough. One reason there are so many causes is because the body is so fragile, so vulnerable, so dependent on the right combinations of heat and cold and food, posture, movement. skin covering, very delicate, alive set of organs all working together. A person can go in a matter of moments from being very, very strong and hardy, seemingly indestructible, to being very sick and dying. I have a couple of friends who an experience that brings everything together. They were on a picnic in Australia in the woods, their two children. And they left the children underneath a tree for just about half an hour. Both parents went to get something, told them to wait there. When they came back, both children were in the process of dying from poisonous mushrooms that they ate. Both died. Everything I've said so far, I hope, is useful in terms of the futility of attachment. It simply doesn't work. And all of the reflections that have been mentioned help us to develop determination, help us order our lives. determine what we truly value and to pursue it. To begin to practice in a sincere way right now. Perhaps to vacillate and 
hesitate and postpone retreats that we say we want to do, etc. Perhaps it helps us to really practice the only time we can practice right now. We move from the uncertainty of the time of death finally into a set of considerations having to do with the fact that only insight into the Dharma the insight that we're developing can help us at the time of death. When you have more time at home, when you move into this segment, what you can do is visualize yourself dying, how it would be with the people around you that might very well be around you and you being in a condition where you're very, very close to death in an imaginative way. feeling very little energy, the breath not flowing freely, perhaps helpless, a sense of helplessness. And the reflection has to do with, at this point, the only thing that can help is the wisdom, the practice that we've developed. Our possessions are useless. They won't help. No matter how hard we've worked to accumulate homes and clothing, cars, at this point, We have to leave it behind, all of it. We have to leave the people that we love and who love us behind, each and every one of them. There's nothing that they can do for us at that moment. And this is true for everyone. get attached to any one of these things, the process of dying becomes torturous. The struggle to maintain the grasp, which is hopeless, makes it impossible to die at peace, makes everything worse for ourselves and whoever is there. the degree to which our practice has developed 
is the degree to which this situation becomes workable. And having understanding of this sort, about the the problem of attachment when we're dying, can be very useful in looking at our attachments now because it's just as true now. And so it's an attempt to help us re-educate ourselves slowly and gradually with the help of the practice. So that we're in alignment with the way things are. Of course, finally, even our body can't help. We've done so much for it. A lifetime of caring for it, feeding it, exercising it, cleaning it, dressing it. It served us so well in many respects. And so according to the teaching, at this point, we have to leave everything behind except who we are. The inner development, the inner work that we've carried out is not wasted. The death of the body is just the death of the body. The mind stream continues, continues to unfold, evolve. at that point are qualities like mindfulness compassion, patience, love and of course how we've lived our life unfinished business with other people perhaps things we've done to accrue wealth or power or prestige that eat away at us now. Be nice if we can die feeling fulfilled. So one lesson that comes out of this reflection as we bring it to a close which can come out of an examination of the process of dying 
is that we use a tremendous amount of time, effort, energy, money, to develop and accumulate things which we have to leave, let go of. And we use very little of our time and energy to develop that which remains with us. Spiritual qualities aren't lost. The rest is. You needn't see it that way. It's just something to consider. For me, part of the beauty of our practice is not simply the obvious value of sitting and walking and retreats and so forth, the very way in which the practice is conceived, being mindful all the time, learning all the time, enables us to develop the practice in the midst of our life as we live our normal life. And so sometimes the reflection on death and stripping away so many things giving power to other things can be very useful for our journey and that's why we do it. I'd like to conclude with a please keep staying a meditative mode with a few sample of lines from the fifth Dalai Lama's meditation on the ways of impermanence. He starts it off to the Lama Ilha that is to his teacher, my refuge, my father, the recollection of whom dispels all sadness I turn for spiritual guidance. Bless my mind with your transforming powers that the thought of death may never evade me, that I may practice the Holy Dharma perfectly. You can see from this person's point of view, he's asking for help so that he doesn't forget death, where so much of what we're all doing is to forget death. And then he proceeds, and I'll give you just a taste of some of the things he touches upon, to use everything that happens to bring him back to an understanding of this theme. In spring, the season of warmth and growth, the stalks of the crops were turquoise green. Now, autumn's end, the fields lie naked and parched. 
my mind turns to the thoughts of my death. Please remember that this is not a morbid preoccupation. On each branch of the trees in my garden hang clusters of fruit, swelling and ripe. In the end, not one piece will remain. My mind turns to the thoughts of my death. In the belly of the vast plateau below me, the campfires of visiting traders glow like stars. But tomorrow they depart, leaving only refuse. My mind turns to thoughts of my death. From very birth, a child sees his parents' age, sees them each day come closer to the grave. How can you say to me, but I am still young? I warn you, there is no hope of hiding from death. Spirits were high with expectations this morning as the men discussed subduing enemies and protecting the land. Now, with nights coming, Birds and dogs chew their corpses. Who believed that they themselves would die today? If you look closely at and contemplate deeply the people and things that appear around you, you can see that all are in constant flux. Everything becomes a teacher of impermanence. in order to die well with the joy and confidence of being within the white rays of spiritual awareness, it is essential to begin readying yourself now. Familiarize yourself with the profundities of the teachings. few notes on practice, a few hints on practice. Although this, as you look at this outline, it's systematic, methodical, and you can work with it that way. For example, take one a day. Uh, I wouldn't spend too much time on it. Come to some calm and perhaps spend, you know, you'll know, but let's say 20 minutes. Don't overdo it. And whichever one you're working on, let's say if you're doing the first one, go into that with some depth. And then when you finish, skim the others so that they they are part of what you learn. But as you go on, you may find that the creative process 
uh, takes you to some place that isn't present in this methodical systematic arrangement. You may find that a particular reflection really is a key to something. It opens you up. In my own case, I'm not telling you to do this. I'm just suggesting. I started off with a very methodical practice and kept coming back to just the skeleton. It would just come up spontaneously. And so when I reflect on death, for the most part, that's what I do. I just have access to it. A skeleton comes up. My own, others. And it's very, very helpful now. Now, I've dropped all the rest of it simply because this is fruitful. So there's no virtue in kind of sticking to it just for its own sake. The key thing is that it opens you up to this sense of what we were talking about all evening and that more and more it becomes real and you become comfortable with it. Now, the fruit is often not experienced during the sitting or when you're practicing, but uh, later on when you start to feel less attached to certain things, more balanced, less excitable, less hysterical, kinder to other people. It softens the heart. If you start to reflect that all of us are going through this, how can you be mean to anyone? It's kind of hard to do. It gets harder to be selfish and so forth. At any rate, my suggestion is if that if you feel genuinely drawn to this, then work with it in your own way from time to time. If you don't, trust that. Just drop it. Just see it as some information that you got tonight at this strange place, 331 Broadway. And maybe in the future it'll be helpful and maybe not. And I wish you luck in terms of getting out of this thing alive. Okay. Any questions? I know we've gone a little late, but I... Um, if there is anything on your mind strongly, uh, I'd like to deal with it. If anyone's upset or anything of that sort, for example. Yeah. Yeah, you seem to have developed some conviction around, the, which I would like to do, around this idea that though the body dies, mm-hmm. the mind does not. Mm-hmm. I wonder um, if you have any thoughts on how you develop conviction in this area. You're talking about rebirth, right? Did we exist before? Now we're going. What? That there is some ongoing energy. Yeah. Um, As you know, it's not required that you believe that, and many people uh, in the West don't. Um, I myself don't really care if a person believes in it or not, because for myself, what I learned is that even if we're not true. Let's say that there is no, I've never existed before, and when I die, that's it. I would still keep doing this practice because it helps me live now. Yeah, so that, um, see, the major death, I'm coming about it indirectly. I don't, uh, I'll give you a few of the reasons which are not the reasons, but I don't, finally, I, the conviction is, it's just there. Okay? You, you know, you could see limits in that. One is, um, Having studied this practice, various forms of the Buddhist teaching for many years, at least for me, over 20 years, um, whatever I've tested has proven to be beneficial for me. And I hope it is for you. So I've developed a lot of trust in the Buddha. So why would he lie? Why would he lie about this? Since it's central to the teaching, 
over and over again. And it isn't just the Buddha, there are, <coughs> excuse me, others. Now, I've had, you know, psychic flashes, drug experiences, I've had psychics tell me, you know, and, you know, all that probably could be explained in other ways, genetically and who knows how. Uh, I've had some experience for past lifetimes, which is very, very convincing for me. And just, I mean, this helps me answer your question, because if I lived before, then I might live again. Um, when I first opened up to all these things, I seemed to know a lot about it. And I had done no reading on this at all. And I mean zero. I had had a typical academic, scientific, intellectual, literary background. And suddenly I had an, a, an experience of a certain kind. And after that experience, stuff was just coming. I didn't know where I knew it. I didn't feel entitled to know it. I felt sometimes very strange. But the words would come out and then I would check with books and it was, seemed okay. It was very weird at first. I, I, I grew to accept it, you know, to understand that. Um, but maybe this, and this is, this is really important. I know it's gone long, but um, if I leave this out, we'll be getting, I think, not the deepest understanding of what this is all about. The death of the body in this teaching is not the most important thing. That is, uh, uh, in Zen they talk about the great death. That's the real important death. I'm just going to say what the teaching says. The really important death is not the death of the body, it's the death of the ego. It's the death of me and mine. And that is, as long as that keeps being alive, the whether you see it in past lifetimes and future lifetimes, or whether you see it from moment to moment, that is, me and mine is born and then it subsides, and it's born and it subsides. That is to say that this habit of selfing uh, claims things as being mine or claims things as being me. Uh, that there's a gap and we don't do it and then we do it again and we don't do it. I mean, just during a typical day, maybe hundreds of thousands of times, the I is born and dies in moments, momentariness. And that's the problem. The root of the problem is that. The suffering comes out of that. So that what the teachings are saying is that uh, what the path leads to is what is called the deathless state. The deathless state, or it's sometimes called the unborn, or it's sometimes called nirvana, or it's sometimes called the unconditioned. Now, that means, that's what this is about, really. Finally, that's what this is about. That is, each one of us is already partaking of that, just that we don't know it. It's not something that we acquire. It's something that, when we clear away everything that's obscuring it, we come to know what we all along have been. But if you want to be Larry, being there at the time, to notice it, it's, you're not going to get there because Larry's the problem. For me, I hope he's not for you, too. maybe for you too. He's definitely my biggest problem in life. Okay. So that the important death, the thing about being reborn and getting a good rebirth and not such a good rebirth, that's not the highest teaching. You know, okay, that goes on, but it's still part of the same game. It's still constantly the ego getting someplace where it has a better condition or a worse condition. But what the teaching is about is shedding the whole thing. Now, that can happen at any time. In fact, um, all you need is one life. Now, according to the teaching, most of us don't do it. Maybe no one does it. So we have many lives and we learn. And in one way in which it's been conceived of in Buddhism is that 
uh, we learn different lessons in different lifetimes. You know, the, the past lives of the Buddha, whether they're myth or propaganda or delusion, but they're interesting because they point out different qualities that were developed in previous lifetimes. Sometimes many, many lifetimes used to develop a, a certain uh, patience or generosity or compassion or mindfulness or honesty or whatever it is. Um, now, there are other reasons. Now, I don't know if any of this will be convincing to you. It seems to me uh, absurd to think that we work so hard on ourselves that the human, with such incredible potential for a human being to go very low, to become an Adolf Hitler or a, or a Stalin, and the other possibilities, which are just to become totally free. Um, it's quite extraordinary. I mean, I think it is. It seems to me uh, makes no sense that you just live and then suddenly your body dies and that's the end of it. That it's all your hard work on yourself. Just one big joke. The universe is just a big joke. Now, a piece of uh, something that was very helpful for me many years ago is uh, there were people who were dying um, in Czechoslovakia and they were lifetime communists. They had been conditioned, they were atheists, did not believe in God, uh, were party members. And dur- during the, their, when they died, when they were dying, they were willing to take LSD. And they took LSD, and some didn't and had this experience, and they had uh, incredible religious experiences uh, full of, they saw whatever, you know. Um, it had nothing to do with their conditioning because their conditioning was totally anti-religious. And they came upon something that has nothing to do with conditioning. Not images or, you know, seeing angels or anything of that sort. They came to something that is beyond words and pictures and it's beyond the mind. They came to reading it, genuine religious experiences and they had no preparation for it. In fact, they were conditioned in their life to be totally uh, opposed Obstacles, incredible obstacles. Marxist ideology is a big barrier, and so it, it's, it, it always struck me as, that, of course, it just—it's a human thing. It's as, uh, it's it's the law. It has nothing to do with what we human beings make up. You know, we'll spin out ideologies till we're blue in the face. You know, new ones and just thoughts, ways of organizing things. But this is beyond ideology. Even Buddhism, it's beyond Buddhism. The Buddha says that. He says none of my verbal, te- they're teaching words. They're not absolutely true. How could they be? They're just words. So finally, the only way you have to know, we have to know for ourselves. So I myself, I'm not so preoccupied with living again and again and again. You see, really, that's the ego still. The ego really wants to hear and say, you mean I'm not going to die? After this is over, I can still go see more movies and have, you know, make love more times and have more delicious meals. Yeah, yeah, be a good boy, be a good girl. You get a nice rebirth. Oh, great. That to me has never been so uh, a real stir to be on the path. It, what it is is to be free. And so, in a sense, that's outside of time and bodies and all the rest of it. Yet you have to do it in time. Um, I can't. So, some of it is based on trust, on the Buddha and other teachers who I've had. I can't. I don't believe Mahabhul would lie to me. I, I mean, I just trust him. I don't think Krishnamurti would lie to me. Now, they could be deluded. Buddha could be deluded. So, finally, you're going to have to make a choice for yourself. 
you know, just believing in it is so what? My faith is not going to help you. And it's, the faith is mainly a value so that it keeps us practicing so that we can verify it directly with our experience. So we don't have to rely on mere faith. But it's palpable, something that's really, you know, it's as real as whatever you think is real. What was your reaction to this? You know, I even hesitated doing it in, in a group of this sort, but I feel it's an important something or other, you know, to think about. And I try to be careful because I don't want to, if somebody's very upset, I'm not interested in pushing anyone, you know, into very bad feelings. Anyone have any reaction to it that it's something that shouldn't be done or should be done? It's okay to do? I, I'm asking for some feedback. What we call feedback. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I thought it was very rewarding. Uh, okay. I don't know how to describe it except that it's my first introduction to it and it's, I'm glad I came today, tonight. Okay. The last time I gave it, a person got up in the middle, it was wringing wet and just pr- practically ran out and I spoke to him later on. He was just terrified. And, you know, I'm not trying to do that. And yet, uh, it's a very, it's you know, it's a very important question, maybe the most important and we have to deal with it. So how else can we do it except by calling it what it is? Death. Yeah. yeah my experience was uh, had strong samadhi. Um, and the other thing that, that I realized is the fact that it, this experience answers questions that have been happening in my life with a lot of transitions going on right now. That it was like coming through the back door. In other, in other words, instead of having the contemplations, I was feeling that and saying, oh, okay. It, it made, made things make sense. Did it help with letting go? Because yeah. it's supposed to. It can help you with letting go a lot. It's not just at the time of death. At the time of death, it's really dramatic. You see that you don't own anything. That nothing belongs to you. It never did. And so it just stands out. And so sometimes when you do that reflection, it becomes easier to have a loose relationship, not not caring, you know, whether it's relationship with a person or your job. It has nothing to do with that. It's more using those things as, as occasions to develop self. And so, if it helps you let go, then it's done its job. If it helps you wake up tomorrow morning and come and sit, or go and sit wherever you live, it's done its job. If it helps you reflect on how you're using this precious life, how you use your time and energy. And you see areas that are futile that you, you, you do anyway, just really silly uses of your own precious life force. If it helps you drop some of that and do something, whether it's this or something else that, that is more valuable, then it's, then it's done its job. It's, not, its job is not to get you depressed, even though that may be unavoidable to begin with. And it was just an accident that it turned up right before Thanksgiving, which is supposed to be festive. I don't know that affects. I didn't like. I didn't like having it at this time. Well, now that's another thing. Yeah, you know, we celebrate our great Thanksgiving by polishing off a couple of million turkeys. Yeah. I found myself a couple times having thoughts about children. Mm. And then I found myself thinking about the desire to have children and wondering if that's kind of a natural 
healthy response to the idea about death, or is it a denial of death? Is it another way of trying to hold on to something? Uh, you know, this idea of immortality or whatever. I just wonder. If you no, it's for you to answer. See, that's what I mean. Get creative. Investigate. It'll open you up. It, my answer would be worthless. It'll be some general thing or it'll be about me. I'm only using myself tonight as an example so that you can do this, something f- with yourself. It's quite creative. It can go, it's incredible. And it doesn't have to be done only in the formal sitting position. I've done some of the, the deepest sessions with this. Have done. I've done natural walking sometimes for hours on retreats, back and forth contemplating the whole time. You can use walking meditation that way as well. The forest tradition uses it. They do a lot of their wisdom work during walking, natural walking. And when the samadhi gets reasonable, you can pick any theme and while you're walking, go rather deeply into it. The Greeks knew about that too. Okay, I wish everyone a happy Thanksgiving. Wherever.